This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hello and welcome to the Professional Book Nerds podcast presented by Overdrive. This is Joe. Hi, hello. Before we get into today's episode, just wanted to remind y'all to rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. We're on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, truly wherever you get your listening on. So if you could take a moment and give us a rating and a review, we'd really appreciate it. We are on social media. You can follow us there. We're on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok. All of those are at ProBookNerds. And of course, if you've got a query or a suggestion for us on the pod, you can send an email to professionalbooknerds at overdrive.com. With that, let's get into my interview with Grady Hendricks. My guest today is an author, journalist, public speaker, and screenwriter. You may know him from his works like Horror Store, My Best Friend's Exorcism, Paperbacks from Hell, The Twisted History of 70s and 80s Horror Fiction, which won the Bram Stoker Award for Best Nonfiction in 2018, The Final Girl Support Group, and so much more. His newest book, How to Sell a Haunted House, is out January 17th from Penguin. It's Grady Hendricks. Grady, welcome back. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me. I am always happy to return to the scene of a crime. <laughs> you know, they say that's bad if you want to get away with it, but yeah, we're glad to have you back. What what would be the point in burning down apartment buildings if you didn't get to go and stand with the crowd and watch? I know, I mean, the best part about arson is watching the fire burn. Pretty, pretty fire, fire. Yeah. <laughs> that's what they say. Uh, but to start us off, would you mind telling the listeners a bit about How to Sell a Haunted House? Yeah. So How to Sell a Haunted House is my new book that's coming out in January 17th of 2023. And it's about two adult siblings who hate each other. uh, And they have to find a way to work together after their parents die. And they've got to clean out their childhood home and put it on the market. And of course, it's haunted by awful puppets and dolls. That's, That's the short version. And most people sort of throw up when they hear puppets. <laughs> it's, it is quite a way to put it. When I was writing my questions, I was like, how do I, how do I say all of the things I need to say without spoiling the way you build it? But you know, that's, that's perfect. Brevity, soul of wit, all of that. Before <laughs> we even get into the dolls and the puppets, uh, I have to, I have to say, I love the dedications to your wife, Amanda. Oh, thanks. The, the camp of just like a two sentence horror story is a dedication. How did that come about and how does she feel about it? <laughs> well, it's funny. I was always I was always a really in awe of what Daniel Handler did with his Lemony Snicket persona. Yeah. Uh, and the dedications to an unseen deceased love. Beatrice. Yeah, Vita, yeah. And and I really appreciated his commitment to his shtick and all that stuff. And and so I was really in awe. And um when I started writing these books, I was like, oh, I'm gonna dedicate them to Amanda. And she had said, I want to die in every single one of your books. And I was like, I know just the trick. 
I'm I'm now mad at myself because I was I was a Lemony Snicket kid. So oh, yeah. th- those books were I finished the last one in middle school. So they were of my time. And once you said it, I was like, oh, yep, that's that is oh, yeah. exactly it. And it's oh, that that's why I was immediately like, I have to go through every one. And yeah, well, <laughs> why did know, I miss funny. this? It's funny, too. You know, Daniel, like I he. I met him and worked with him a little bit a long time ago when I did publicity for this movie he wrote called Rick. Um, And I always, and the movie bombed terribly, Uh, but I always wish it hadn't because I thought his script was so good for it and was like, and it would have been such a nice thing for him to do because I think it's hard when you have a persona like Lemony Stickett to write other fiction, right? Like you write a book, people want a Lemony Sticket book, but doing movies, I felt like would have given them that freedom for a whole new avenue. And it was such a good film. If anyone finds a way to check it out, I'm not even sure it's streaming, but it's got Bill Pullman in it. It's called Rick. It's directed by a guy named Curtis Clayton. Um, but it's it's really good. And I and I wish it hadn't bombed. I wish it had been a better publicist uh, and the movie had done better <laughs> so that Daniel Handler could have had a bigger movie career his his writing style is is truly something else and i can only imagine now now i'm gonna hunt down and find rick but um just the way his humor comes across that that kind of blend of just like i said camp i i think that's the best way i can just like describe that kind of dark humor horror blend for for everyone yeah and and it's a funny thing too you know I feel like because of a lot of, because of what he writes is, I mean, not his adult fiction, but his his kids' books are, you know, they're genre, they're funny, but I find that like, there's a huge amount of technical work that goes into what he does, you know, making sure your joke lands, making sure your lines hit the way you want them to. And so, and I think because they're funny, people tend to, disregard the amount of like technical labor that goes into them um and and i actually it's interesting i read one of his adult novels which i liked a lot i thought it had really really great dialogue and stuff but i just admire the precision of those lemony snicket books so each one is just short sharp and so perfectly tuned it's that setup punchline kind of mm-hmm. he found his perfect yeah. balance. And I, I know I've said on the podcast before, but they are are kind of what made me slow down as a reader. I was the kid that was ripping through books. Right. And that kind of like, oh, I, I have to think about what he's saying here. Otherwise, I'm missing the whole point. And there's yeah. there's a beauty to that. Yeah. And there's also a thing where I'm a big skimmer um, yes. in books. Sometimes and, you just got to get through. <laughs> yeah. And and when someone's writing the way he does with that sort of line for line pleasure, Terry Pratchett, someone who does that, P.G. Woodhouse. And it's like, for me, those are writers where it's like the joy is in slowing down. You know, like you're, you're missing the point if you're just going in there for the story. Right. You you need to take the full journey. There's there's no shortcuts on on, yeah. on those kind of books. Um, but but speaking of some interesting style choices, you've got those in How to Sell a Haunted House. You open up the book with a letter to the reader, not only acknowledging the love of a haunted house story. And I saw on Twitter uh, your former carpooler uh, oh, Rhett Thurman, that you found yeah. that, was, that was like the perfect timing for me, too. Um, but also acknowledging the pandemic and loss and how we're all kind of haunted as people, not just spaces. How did you like what made you decide to include this at the start well, of the book? So and actually those letters are going out in the galleys, but they're not going to be in the finished book because so the original reason I wrote that letter um, was 
this was a pandemic book. I mean, you know, a lot of the stuff, you know, really thinking about your parents' mortality, that really came to the fore for me during the pandemic. And I think for a lot of people. Um, and then this book was originally going to come out in summer of 2021, no, summer of 2022. And writing it in 2020 and 2021, I was like, sorry, man, the pandemic's got to be in here. This is how we live now. There's masks, there's all this stuff. And the longer it took me to get the book right, it took a long time for a lot of reasons. Um, the more the pandemic just sort of became more and more part of the background. And so by the time the book is actually coming out, you know, the pandemic's not over, but we certainly just are moving right along. And so, and so really, I, I, you know, speaking of style, one of the things I realized is I really try to get out of the way of the reader. Like I really want my style as much as possible to be a clear pane of glass between the reader and the story. And so that letter came, you know, I tried a bunch of different versions for the book. And finally, I was like, you know what? I said to my editor, like, is this necessary? And she said, I don't think it is. So we just took it out. That, um, makes, that makes a lot of sense. Clearly, I'm yeah. reading my uh, my early copy. No, no, no. And I don't mind talking about it because, you know, it is, it's in all the arcs. And it is, there's like a special edition we're doing for Barnes and Noble of the book that's going to have like a version of that in the front and an introduction. So, yeah, I don't mind talking about it at all. It's just... Um, you know, it's funny. I, 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 I really like Paul Tremblay's books a lot, but Paul really loves playing with structure uh, and style and all that stuff. And like, that's just, and I, and I'm in, in, and I'm jealous of people who do that, but it ain't me, man. Like for me, <laughs> the more books I write, the more I just try to get out of the way. Just strip away from it. It makes sense when you described your writing as a pane of glass, because reading through you're connected to the characters. You understand their struggles and their emotions very clearly um, to the point that I think you kind of fall in line so easily with, with what they're feeling because you've kept it so transparent. Um, I, I mean, like both of my parents are, are, are getting up there in age yeah. and my father actually in like that same timeline had gone in for a surgery. And then after the fact had honestly a very similar, ch I, I was reading through this and I was like, Wow, uh, were these dad's records sent through? He had the whole like, yeah. uh oh, we've got some infection in there. Let's do another surgery yeah. and another surgery. And you know, he's now a year and a is half he later. Okay? He is now, thankfully. Okay. He, but a year and a half later, he's uh, finally on two canes uh, after yeah. six months of uh, not weight bearing status. So it's yeah, it definitely read Oof. in a way that I went, okay, that is why this is hitting me so hard yeah. so fast. Is he in his, but his seventies or. Uh, both of my parents are 65. 65. <laughs> so yeah, the, they'll be 66 this, uh, in 2023. So by the yeah. time the book comes out. <laughs> well, it's funny. A friend of mine is an orthopedic surgeon who actually like helped me with this book some because there's some surgery in it. Uh, and um, but he said that when he turned 42, he's like, I stopped getting on chairs to reach for high things. He said, because the fact is after 40, it's not the injury. You're not more prone to get injured. He's like, the, the recovery from injuries are so brutal. Um, and that sounds like what your dad's going through. You know, you pull that one thread and the whole sweater comes unraveled. <laughs> I truly, uh, I will now be considering step stools for everything. Exactly. Now, well, I'm, now I'm just hearing no more chairs. <laughs> <laughs> no more shares. Exactly. Well, and you know, and the other, you know, time only moves in one direction, man. Mm -hmm. It's, it's, it's hard. Like it's, it's one it's of the hardest facts of life.
some something about waking up one morning after a, a fun night with friends and going oh yeah <laughs> i don't know <laughs> i don't know when i'm gonna recover from this you uh you change <laughs> it only takes Absolutely. that first one <laughs> well and you know and it's funny like one of the things that one of the reasons i wrote this book was because of the pandemic not just looking at my mom's mortality and my dad's mortality but also i really wanted to write like a classic ghost story because um I wanted something comforting. Like when you write a book, you can, that's, you just live in an imaginary world for a year. And so I really wanted to. And the thing I like about ghost stories, especially sort of traditional ghost stories is it's all the sort of like return of the repressed stuff, right? The things you cover up are the things that don't really go away. And I feel like that's very much the pandemic in some parts of the world, you know, especially in 2020. I mean, I feel like there were parts of the country all over which were just sort of pretending it wasn't happening and it was happening. Um, and so I felt like a ghost story really suited it. And then the funniest, the thing that really got me was, you know, looking around my mom's garage and thinking, Oh God, if she goes like, I got to deal with all this crap. Like, what am I going to do? Um, and I feel like that's something that we all do eventually, you know? Um, Someone, what was it? I had this written down on my, my, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I had written down, someone had written uh, online a social media post um, that uh, when we moved into this house, no one thought that 38 years later, I'd be the only one left cleaning it out. And I was just mm. like, yeah, I mean, you know, we all are going to do it one day and it's just brutal. And, and classic ghost stories, like, you know, like you look at, I, I was reading a lot of 19th century uh, British ghost stories or American ghost stories too um, for this Christmas show I did because there used to be this tradition in the UK of publishing ghost stories at Christmas in the 19th century. So I had to read a bunch of them to do this show. Um, and so many of the trappings of a traditional ghost story, like, you know, it's like, oh, the gallery of portraits of the old ancestors. And then, you know, Lady Lamshank's bedroom where no one sleeps in her bed ever since Lady Lamshanks went missing on the moors. And, you know, oh, the old nursery and Master Higginbottom's, you know, cries can be heard in it. There's his rocking horse, you know, the, after he got sucked into the bog. And that's the same stuff as what my mom's garage is full of, just the Downton Abbey version. It's just fancy crap that gets left behind. You know what I mean? Like it's, and it's like, and then what do you do with them? Like, you don't want to keep that stuff. I mean, there's one or two things you want, but like, can't keep it all, but it was their stuff. Like, do you put it in the garbage? Like, so it's, I find, and you know, and that was sort of one, of, I, I always have some question. I usually have a style question that I'm trying to deal with with every book, like a, a craft question or a technical challenge. And then a, um, a, a more emotional one that sort of powers me through the book. And what really got me through is trying to figure out how do you deal with the crap? people leave behind when they die not just the physical crap but the stories the traumas the scars the good stuff like so anyway so that was a very long-winded answer to your very simple question hey i love it <laughs> <laughs> but but speaking on that you did take kind of the the gothic approach for this book you're you're very clear about that's what you wanted to do um now it sounds like it was an escape from the pandemic which I can absolutely appreciate. But then on the the flip side, it's it's not just the house and the things in it and how they're going to get rid of them. It is also so much 
built off of grief. What made you yeah. isolate Louise for this story? Not only is her daughter, you know, thousands of miles away, her she's estranged from her brother, and now both of her parents are dead. How did, how yeah. did that isolation come to pass? Well, that a lot of that was just because that's what happens in your family. Like, yeah, you know, when you go home for a family thing and your partner or your spouse or whoever doesn't come with you, you're kind of unprotected. Like the dynamic you fall back into is the family dynamic. And it can feel really distant. My wife's a chef. Uh, she owns a restaurant. But that means that like her vacation time is really limited. Um, and so like, we'll go see my family for Christmas and she's there for three days, but then she has to get back and reopen the restaurant. And I'll usually stay for another five or six days. And, um, and so like, it's just very isolating to be with family and not your partner, you know, and not have them there. And I wanted, and it really, you know, you really revert. (laughs) Yeah. Well, it sounds like she's, she's falling into those old roles and it also, you know, I think that's what so beautifully lets, uh, the haunts creep in, so to speak, right. like, because it it starts as almost like negative self-talk. Like that's kind right. of the, oh, this thing, you know, this doll is going to hate me. This puppet is going to hate me. Uh, <laughs> the squirrels are going to get me. Like it, it all starts in, in such a way like that before the pitch picks up. Did you, how did you plan this? How did you come up with your pacing? Well, because haunted house stories are slow burns. You know what I mean? Like, um, and, uh, and you know, one of the nice things about having them have to sell this house is one of the questions with a haunted house story is always, why don't they just leave? And you always have to sort of hurt, cross that barrier. With this, why don't you just leave? Well, the, their money's all tied up in the house. Like, um, they got to get it on the market. Um, but the other thing with the pacing is also... I really, you know, the the technical challenge I had with this book is um, that I really wanted to set for myself was years ago, one of my sisters-in-law said, she had just read My Best Friend's Exorcism, so it must have been like 2016. And she was like, how come every character in a book is always an only child? And I was thinking about that. I was like, oh, because families are hard. It's really hard to make that feel real. And I spent a, and so the challenge for me in this book was trying to write siblings and, oh, and also to write a dude main character. I don't write many dudes. Um, and uh, so I really wanted, I really wanted people to care about Mark and Louise and their parents and like have them invested emotionally. And that takes time. You know, um, I never studied writing like in school or anything, but I do know from a lot of friends of mine who've gone through writing programs that there used to be, there's less now, but there really used to be, and I think in some programs, so a real prejudice against genre. Like, you know, we're not writing genre here. We're writing real- we're writing literature, yeah. Yeah, and on the one hand, I kind of get it. I mean, I think it's ridiculous, you know, but I also get it because like so much of learning to write is learning to do, okay, how do I make someone care about this imaginary person in these black marks on this white paper? How do I get characters in and out of rooms? How do I make characters argue that doesn't just sound like every, how do I get past the cliches that I've received from pop culture and get to something real? And so I get from a writing instructor's point of view that then to superimpose on top of that 
and they're 5,000 year old vampires or, and this is taking place in outer space and they're being attacked by zombies. I'm like, I get that for some writing instructors, it's like, guys, let's get the basics here. Let's, let's learn how to have a character in a room having a conversation with someone that feels real, where they, it doesn't feel like stage choreography. It feels the person can actually see it with the minimal work. So, um, but so getting people to invest in Mark and Louise um, and, and their relationship emotionally, we need some time before the haunted dolls show up to have that happen. <laughs> I mean, and and the gothic style really fits that. You know, it, yeah. it gives you that slow burn space and you you do want to try to like both of them because they both have these unlikable characteristics yeah but you also immediately feel sympathetic or even empathetic toward them just for the situation they're in what they've been going through in their life yeah and you know and one of the things that is like louise is a such a almost typical oldest sibling you know and very type a and but she also like you know, one of the things I wanted to have in this was that, you know, people have made a lot of us and no one knows where she comes from. No one knows this stuff in her background that, that made her this way. And Mark is this dude who, and I love this brand of, and it's because I grew up in the South, maybe this exists everywhere, but this Southern dude who's just a big, loud guy having a good time. And like, you know, he doesn't give a shit if he looks like garbage one day. He doesn't care. He, he doesn't care about his cholesterol why because he really likes eating pizza it tastes good why shouldn't he if you've got a problem with that that's your problem um and and i really love people like that who are just but i also feel like you know it's really easy to take people like that at face value loud extroverts who can be sometimes obnoxious or easy to take at face value you know and uh and so um there was actually a thing that got cut from the book that I really, I really liked so much because it had a lot about cold spots because that's such a classic haunted house thing where like, oh, this spot in this room is really And Mark just used the cold spots in the haunting to like keep his beer cold. And I loved that so much, but came out, not enough room. <laughs> oh, I love that. Save that for something else. Absolutely. But, but but it's it's so true because it's it's also easy and it's definitely a credit to you to take a caricature to take a person like that and just make them a caricature that he is yeah. only ever the loud note. And we see a lot of nuance to him. It, you know, what starts off as we're only understanding Louise's perspective of her older brother of he doesn't care. He just wants to come in here and dump everything out and call it a day to, I can't, I can't throw that out. That was mom's. And yeah, you know, there's, there is so much nuance to both characters Thanks, um, I appreciate that. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It, it it makes you immediately go from do I hate this guy to oh, he's not one note. There's there is something yeah. so much more there. Um now on the on the flip side, Louise is a single mom. How did you go about writing that parent-child relationship? Yeah, I had a I have a hard time writing parents. Um it's the hardest thing because I don't have kids and um, you know, and so when I did um, Southern Book Club's Guide to Slaying Vampires, it was the first time I was really writing parents. It was really, really hard. I actually interviewed a lot of people I know who have kids. Um, I'm like, how does this work? Um, and so, and I really, you know, it's funny. It took me a long time to sort of figure out Louise. And 
one of the things I realized, and my oldest sister is a, is a, is a divorced mom, a single mom. My mom was a basically, I mean, she was married to my dad for a long time, but my parents got divorced when I was about 13. So for many years raising me, she was a single mom. And one of the things I really noticed with my sister is she, the world sort of became very easy for her after her divorce, which was, does this help me take care of the kids? If not, not useful. Like, and, and her world really became about putting her kids first, making sure they had the stuff they needed, and then doing the other stuff. And so I was like, so for Louise, that was sort of when I when I was really thinking about it, I was like, that was my way in that kind of like, okay, that's as a single mom, that's what your life is. Like, does this put food on the table for my kid and clothes on their back? Does this work for them? And then everything else is arranged around that 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 absolutely makes sense the like will this pay for preschool and then yeah. at the end of the day everything else just kind of happens okay i see that and it's and it's also you know and one of the dangers with that is i think people who have to make that that choice and and i mean they're single dads too but i think you know, largely ones i'm more familiar with single moms is they don't seem like a lot of fun and they get thought of as stuck in the mud and they get thought of you know as boring and it's like well yeah, because fun is a luxury product. <laughs> like, you know, right like, when you're taking you need... care of another human, when you're that yeah. responsible, you got to put a lot of other things first. Yeah. And so it's, and I've always thought that was really, un- but it, I've always thought that was really unfair. And it was also one of the hard things about writing Louise because um, she doesn't seem like much fun because her priorities are raising a kid. She's the list maker. She's the, she is the, like yeah. you said, the type A kind of person, which already makes a hard kind of fun sell in a lot of spaces. Yeah, no, exactly. I mean, my oldest sister is a single mom and like, you know, she really would, you know, she went through years where almost the only thing she said to people started with apologies because she was like, you know, she made choices about raising her kids. Then she's like, I'm sorry, I'm not, I'm sorry, I can't be more flexible. Sorry, I can't do that. Sorry, I can't chip in for that gift for, you know what I mean? It was just like, and I felt terrible for her because it's like, she had to sacrifice so much stuff. And at the same time, I don't think she's a martyr or anything. She didn't make herself a martyr, but like, you know, and we all make sacrifices for for what we want. But like, um, yeah, it was, it was, it was hard to watch that, you know, because I just felt terrible. But it's funny, I'm working on a book right now. They've been a lot, it's set in 1970. And um, a lot of it's about uh, unwed mothers at the time, what, what, the, what the parlance was at the time. And there, I just read this, this manual on, on social work for the, the unwed mother and sort of how to work from, a, it's like a social worker's textbook from 1971, how to interact with unwed mothers, how to work with them, how to, all this stuff. And um a lot of there's a chapter with a lot of statistics just sort of giving you the background and then at the the last sentence of the chapter says um we are only concerning ourselves with the unwed mother um even though every illegitimate child has two parents there are no studies and no statistics on unmarried fathers period and it is the only and i've read i've read dozens of these books by now of a set you know from that era about you know and it is the only mention of the 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 fathers yeah it's like 
it is so crazy how much unwed, illegitimate children and unwed mothers were this huge social issue for 30 or 40 years. And it only was about the mothers. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big money when you start your next project today at Menards. Check out our great selection of garage and utility lighting options in stock, ready to take home today. We carry everything to help you illuminate whatever project you're working on. Shop garage and utility lighting products in store at your nearest Menards. You can also view all of our entire selection of lighting options today on Menards.com. Save big money at Menards. Yeah, I don't know how we got. Oh, we got on that because I was talking about single mothers and single. But fathers. that, but that'll make for a fascinating book. Can't wait for that one. <laughs> it's going to be weird. Yeah, I'm writing it now, so yeah, <laughs> nothing wrong see. with weird. <laughs> so, uh, thinking of format again, you've broken down the book into sections following the stages of grief. So you've got these big page interrupters for denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and acceptance. Uh, calling out these human moments really kind of lends to the storytelling, and it's it's almost easier as the reader to put yourself into the shoes at that moment. You, you have that like direct direction to switch to that frame of mind. What made you decide to include that kind of that style choice? Yeah. So I love book structure, like, and I really like having strategies that sort of like structure the book because I feel like readers, they, they like that, framework. They, you know, final girl support group readers, they like turning a page and being like, oh, here's the next chapter, but we get some interstitial material that sort of builds out the world a little. Um, or we sold our souls did that or, you know, horror store, like readers are like, yeah, exactly. Here's another piece of furniture. Now. So I really like having things like that in my books. And this was a book that was straight up chapter numbers. And then I was like, I need, I need a structure here that, that's going to like pull people through this. And I was like, oh yeah, five stages of grief. There you go. And, and then, you know, now there's more stages of grief and there's different stages of grief. And I'm like, we all know the five, like we're, we're, you know, it's like, <laughs> we'll it's keep like, it classic. <laughs> yeah. Let's keep it classy here. That's yeah. Um, as, for your writing as a whole, what, what kind of encouraged that love of those stylistic choices? Oh, well, you know, my job is to keep someone turning the page. That is, that is entirely my job. And so I would be a fool not to use every tool in my tool bag, every weapon in my arsenal to keep a reader turning a page. Um, years ago, I there, I wrote this article, I think it's still online um, for this, it was this hoity-toity journal. It actually started out as an article, I think for Slate or something. And um, I wound up the only, it got so long, the only person that would take it was this pointy headed fancy pants journal called N plus one. Jesus. Um, and, but it was about uh, World of Warcraft. And I had wanted, what I wanted to do is like a, a video game addiction was getting talked about a lot. I was like, you know what? I'm going to get addicted to World of Warcraft and write about that experience. Um, and I did. 
Uh, and it was, it took me years to kick that addiction, but I talked to a lot of the game designers at the time, uh, who, who from Blizzard and they were talking about how, um, they, you know, the, the theory of gamification, this idea that, you know, they want to keep you playing. And so you have all these different skill sets and assets. You have different levels for your character. Their skills each have a different level, um, you know, all this stuff. So they're like, you know, we want it so that you're always just about to tick up to the next level somewhere. If it's not, you're going, your character going from level 59 to 60, oh, you're so close, but maybe it's your leatherworking skill is about to level up or your fishing skill, or you're about to get a, you're about to get to the level where you get a better horse. And so all those little, like for readers, having something like it's about to tick over is it, it keeps them engaged with the narrative. So, oh, this chapter is about to end. Oh, I'm about to get another um, another thing, another treat, another turn of the page, you know, um, and or another turn of the story, another twist, another something different. Um, and so I, that's, you know, I really try to, to use it all. Um, I think having blank pages in a book is boring. Like you've got the space, why not play with them? The job is entertainment. So entertain, motherfucker. I love that. I love the idea of just calling it out as gamification for the reading. I to to take it back to Daniel Handler and Lemony Snicket. I remember yeah. my own kind of first um love for the books because the hardcovers had the like rough edges and yeah. in kids books in YA books no one was really doing that. The only other time I think I saw it around that same time was with Holly Black like the Spiderwick Chronicles. So it was that that kind of like someone is doing something for me. Um, same thing, like the books were so well-designed, illustrations throughout. And so seeing that, I love when authors take the time that are like, oh, no, this has to be the whole package. Everything here has to count for something, whether it's, yeah. you know, tying the whole theme together or like you said, just, you know, taking you to that point of like something else is about to roll over. You know, even though you're at the end of the chapter, the reward is the next chapter, sometimes you're going to get that that bonus power up of, oh, we're entering a new section. Something is breaking here. Yeah. And it's it's also, you know, it's funny. You look at, um, like, I spent a lot of time looking at old paperbacks. And you look at, like, um, what they sold, the numbers they sold in. You know, a mid-list author in 1983 was selling 80,000, 89,000 copies of a book. And yes, lots of things have changed, distribution and all this. These days, a mid-list author is lucky to be selling like 30,000 copies. Lots of things change to make that happen. But one thing is, you know, I, I, I've asked a lot of editors this and a lot of people in publishing, like, where'd those readers go? And, you know, what, what, what happened there? And all of them are like, oh, we lost them. We just lost those readers. And so few people read now. Um, and, you know, and there's a lot of, um, of, of, of competition for your reading time. I mean, you know, I have a nephew who was a huge reader until he was about 12, 13 years old. And he started playing video games. And he really did stop reading until he turned like 21 or 22. And I get it. If Call of Duty had been around when I was like a kid, I mean, I had like Atari, right? It was like a little, it was like you're, you're moving like these squares around this. Yeah, yeah. And even then I did way too much of that. Like, so if I'd had Call of Duty or something immersive like that, I never would have read another book. I get it, man. But like, 
we have to compete for attention. And so a book really needs to tap dance harder than ever to keep people engaged. Right. I I was looking through um, some of your other books and I was thinking of, um, what is it? My my best friend's exorcism, the Spotify mm-hmm. link that you have at the beginning yeah. of the ebook version. Love that. Like even considering the format, do you find yourself considering uh, the audiobook version? Because when you talked about your nephew, my first thought was give that kid an audiobook, put it on in the background. He can still you know, read while he plays. <laughs> that's interesting. I hadn't even thought about that, but maybe that is a key for like getting people like to stick with reading as audiobooks. I, I'm not an audiobook guy. Like it's just, I get distracted too quickly and then I lose my place. Um, but yeah, that's actually really smart. Um, but yeah, no, I I try to the audiobook they don't want you to mess with. Like Okay. Just yeah, keep I, that, I, let that be. Yeah, it, it's like cuz usually the audiobook publisher is different than your book publisher and what they want is the book, the end. And like and like I'm pushing more and more to have full cast audiobooks and get more bells and whistles in there. Yeah, graphic audio is a great way to go yeah. for for some of that. Yeah, no, exactly. But I'm only at the point now where I can ask for that stuff because they're selling enough audiobooks to make it worthwhile. Um, but the ebooks, I try to put different stuff in there if they'll let me. Um, and like special editions, limited editions, the paperback, I always try to have some extra material in there. Like, why not? Like, it's a different format. Well, you might as well, you know, use use kind of every opportunity you have. Um, yeah. But in the same vein, the covers. I, I love every single one of your covers. They all kind of bring about a different emotion. They all, a lot of them have that nostalgic vibe to them. What is your process like for designing a cover? What's your involvement? How do you usually convey your vision? I'm going to ask 38 questions in one. <laughs> yeah. Well, no, so it's funny. It's, um. so I got really spoiled. My first editor who's over at Quirk Books, uh, who he's not there anymore, but um he, Jason Rakulik, uh, and he just published a book called Hidden Pictures. Hidden Pictures? Hidden Pictures. It's it's a book where he combines image and text in it in really fun ways. Um, but uh, he, he was a real talent, and he really could see the whole package. I mean, Horror Store is the horror store because of Jason. Like, you know, um, that Ikea catalog trim size, making it look like an Ikea, that's all him. And he really had this idea for, I want something that it's going to work and we'll, we'll get, know what we see it. We got to get there. Um, and he had no qualms about sending a designer back. I mean, the hardcover of my best friend's exorcism, I think they went through 70 something design ideas before they got there. And even then the cover that really clicked was the paperback cover. Um, and that was the other person who was, who was a quirk at the time. He's not there anymore. Doogie Horner, um, who was the art director there who did that best friend's exorcism cover. And so between Doogie and Jason, I got really spoiled. Like, you know, and, and, and I was, they allowed me to be part of that process and, and, and to really, you know, hear their thought process and everything. So when I came over to, um, uh, when I came over to Berkeley, my publisher now, they, they inherited a monster who had really clear ideas about book design. Um, and, and, you know, and it's funny, like, it's hard because I hate, you know, the art, the art department at Berkeley, it's bigger, they're doing more books, they're more, so I hate making them do stuff over and over and over again, but we're getting used to each other. 
Um, and it, it's not right until it's right. You know, there was an early version, not an early, actually a pretty late version of the My Best Friends Exercise, or sorry, of the Final Girl Support Group cover. It wasn't working. It was like, everyone was like, it was the, it was, we, we had found this cover and it was the, not the right cover, but the meeting cover, which is the cover that everyone in the room agrees on enough that you can end the meeting. Like, okay, fine, we'll go with this. Let's all go home, we're hungry. Um, and I was like, I don't know why. And I was asking people, I, I, I was really, and finally I talked to a friend of mine who's a graphic designer and he was like, that chair on the cover, because the cover is, he's like, it's on an angle at three quarters, but the title treatment and your name are flat. And he's like, so they're operating on two different planes. And because the chair overlaps with the title, it's not registering right. It's not, your eye's not going to the right place. So I went back and I emailed the art director. I'm like, so do me a favor. Can you... And they did it. And it's like, everyone, everyone agreed. It's like, boop, it just clicked. And we're like, okay, that's the cover. Great. But it was like, you just had to keep banging your head against it until we got there. And I'm not saying I'm some genius, but like they had to finish probably, you know, 17 covers that week and prep 12 more. I just had one to focus on. You know what I mean? So it's just, so yeah. So I had to sell a haunted house. We went through a lot of covers. Um, and and UK covers, man, I don't know what it is, but like so different and like like it's been in, in, in there's a whole different language that the art directors use. It's a really different animal working with an American graphic designer and a British graphic designer are really different skill sets. And I'm not I'm not sure I've mastered the, the, the British one. Well, it's, it's tough because on on either end, you are coming from a place that most uh, graphic cover design right now is not at. You are hearkening back to something else. You are bringing different pieces forward and they are doing a great way of kind of like modernizing your vision, I would say. Oh, no, thanks. But there is always going to be that struggle of like, how do I say, no, you see this book from 1978. I want yeah. this part of this, this book from 93. And if we smush it all together we might get there but you know right now everyone's very into an illustrated cover with you know several yeah. layers and some things are flat some things are are three-dimensional and then in the UK they are they are on a different world and everything is well it's funny you know it's funny because cover design is because doing paperbacks from hell like it was it was so amazing to read about this world where art directors were, you know, they were Don Drapers. They were, they would come in and be like red. And that year the book covers would all incorporate red. You know, I mean, they were just like allowed to be the big swinging dicks of the, of the publisher. They, and, and they, they, they made it work, you know, and, and things went wrong here and there. I mean, like, you know, I think a lot of people blame the fact that that sort of like um, new wave of science fiction in the 60s never really took off from a sales point of view. A lot of people blame that on the on the art directors because they're like the covers were were brutalist and ugly and experimental and maybe, you know, um, but they also sold a ton of books. Um, and but it's such a radically different world than it is now. And so I, I always like. I always try to like not bring in that kind of retro design. Um, but the next book, the not how to sell a haunted house, but the one after it is 
uh, I haven't talked to the art department yet. I haven't even turned in first draft yet, but like, but you already see the cover. <laughs> yeah. I know exactly what this cover I think needs to be. And I'm sure we'll wind up somewhere in the middle between where I am and where they are, but uh, it's going to be fun. Like it's going to be very, uh, a return to sort of a more horror story kind of book. But I do love that. I love that the cover that you truly do think of, of every <clears throat> element, the cover is just as important as the story, as the, the reason to flip the page. Yeah. Well, and you know, it's like, uh, on the one hand, authors with too many opinions are, no one likes them. Um, but on the other hand, like, I've, I've, tr- I've tried to work really, really hard to understand what I'm doing. You know what I mean? And like, like, I learn I, the language yeah, they speak. And, yeah, learn the language yeah. they speak and like, and to really understand what's possible and what's not, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Make sure that you're not asking for the world and then a diva when it can't happen. Yeah. Well, it's funny. I was involved with a book that, um, not with any of those publishers I just named, this was much earlier, but where they hadn't done many books before, the company was putting it out, and they designed a book that was like, had all this stuff they wanted in it. And I was like, I, I'm just going to throw it out there, guys. I'm worried about this. Like, it's it's going to be an expensive book. And they're like, no, 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 We priced it out, blah, blah, blah. Man, they, once they did the first print run and they got the bill from the printer, they were like, what? Um, you know, because they just, you can price it out as many times as you want, but there's going to be stuff in there you aren't anticipating if you haven't done it a bunch before, you know? Um, and, and then what are you going to do? You're going to pull your, scrap your pub date and go back to ground, you know, go back to square one. Like it's, you know, so. <laughs> you can't really return them. They're, they're printed. They're done. Yeah. Uh, what inspired you to start writing and how did you find your genre? I started writing because it was a thing I could do on my own. Like I, I want in, in high school, I really wanted to do theater and direct theater. Um, and in college, I really wanted to, to direct theater. And then I was like, oh, I started to realize that like, you know, cause, cause I, I wanted to do film and, um, but I didn't have the equipment in high school. You know, it was like video equipment was really expensive. I just couldn't do it. So I was like, okay, theater. Theater was possible. And so I did a lot of shows. I did a lot of shows in college. And then I started leaning towards film again because I had a bunch of friends, roommates who were in film school. Um, But two things happened. One is I realized that doing theater, basically you spent all your time getting people to learn their lines and show up for rehearsal. And doing film was so exciting. You spent all your time waiting for someone to give you permission to make the movie. And so the one thing I could do where I was only relying on me was write. Um, and I made my living for a long time uh, as a freelance writer doing, um, I want to say journalism, but really I mean, it was more cultural coverage, book reviews, movie reviews, interviews, that kind of stuff. Uh, and then writing press releases and, you know, all kinds of stuff. And that all died in 2008. Like it just died. Um, and so I was like, I don't have another skill. <laughs> I All I know how to do is, is write. So I really doubled down on, on writing fiction, which I played with a little bit, but hadn't been serious about. And I went to Clarion Workshop in University of San Diego for about six weeks. And that really was like boot camp for me. That really got me serious about it. And so, and then in terms of genre, I was mostly writing sci-fi and sort of stuff that was kind of in between. 
And what I realized is the more I leaned towards horror, the more people liked it. And as I started to write horror, I realized, oh, no one else is doing this much. I mean, this was like mid, this was like 2009, 2010. And, you know, Barnes and Noble had scrapped its horror sections around then. Um, the Walking Dead was around, but there wasn't much else besides Stephen King. <laughs> um, I mean, and, I, and I'm not knocking on people. I mean, there were people writing horror at the time, but it wasn't getting really widely distributed. It, it had an okay readership. It wasn't, so it was like, there was really room to kind of do stuff. Like no one was doing anything much. Um, and so that was fun. There weren't a lot of rules. And I think a lot of horror was getting written, but it was getting marketed as literary fiction uh, and magic realism. Um, so yeah, it was just a weird coincidence, you know, time and place. That That is kind of funny though, that it was the balance of the market and and also finding your own enjoyment in it and having truly kind of what led you to writing in the first place, that space of you're still kind of alone. There are readers, there are people clamoring for horror, but at that time specifically, like you said, Barnes and Noble scrapped its section. So yeah. you really had the freedom to just kind of put it out there and and see what stuck and kind of and kind of build from there. Yeah. And also, you know, I I wanna, you know, the self-publishing boom was big then too. And that gave me some freedom because I um I I did a book called Satan Loves You that I self-published that was kind of more of a comedy uh, with, with the supernatural elements. And um, Satan's basically sort of the middle, the overworked middle manager of hell. And then I did a book that I reissued called Bad Astronauts. It was a hard science fiction thing, but it was really just sort of finding my place and, and what worked for me and you know what was the most fun. And so it was really nice to have self-publishing there to put stuff out, not because I, I didn't make much money doing it, but nothing teaches you how to write books except writing books. And there's something about not just finishing a manuscript, but editing it to an audience that's going to, you're going to release, you really, you know, you really look for those typos. You, and then to get into format and figure out like front matter and back matter and all that stuff. That was really important to me. And so self-publishing, I give it a lot of credit, like self-publishing those two books really taught me a lot. A solid way to cut your teeth. Um, I know we're running out of time here, but just some things to start to wind us down. Uh, Do you want to put the fun in funeral? (laughs) Yes. Um, You know, here's the issue. Um, We're all going to die. It's literally the only, no, can't do anything about it. And it's literally the only thing we all have in common. Um, You know, I, um, and so and I feel like people really avoid talking about it, but it really, death is a big part of being alive. And so I like talking about it. I think it should be, I think you should be able to have serious conversations about death. I think you should be able to have fun conversations about death. One of the big moments for my wife and I is when we both confess to each other after we've been married for a few years that we each spent time having fantasies about the other one dying. And, you know, you're like, oh my God, I'll be like a sexy widower. Like, you know, like, like I'll, I'll, people will feel, I won't have to do anything for like a year. I'll just be like, sorry, man, my, like, like my wife died. Can you just back off? Like, I don't have time to fill out this form. Like, um, and, and so I feel like, you know, it's, it's fun, but it's also serious, but it's also what unites us. 
hadn't thought of that. Just thinking of what it would be like if the other died. Yeah. Uh, it's, I mean, but also, you know, and the other thing is there's nothing worse than a bad funeral, man. They are awful. If you can do anything to make it a little better, I yeah. have started to swear off black at funerals because unless the person was that, like they wanted you to look at the part all the time, you're going to get the most fun floral print in the closet. Yeah. And that's, <clears throat> and that's just it. Cause life exactly. is life and death is what we all go through. Yeah. And, you know, and one of the funny things is um, there's, there's a picture of my mom, my sisters, me and my grandmother, like busting a gut like it's someone i don't know what's it and and someone was asking me they're like oh where was that picture taken i was like oh that's at my grandfather's funeral <laughs> but like you know like some of the funniest stories i've ever heard have been at funerals but like and then you have funerals that are just funereal and they're awful and the minister like didn't really know the person who died so everything's very vague and flowery and teaches a lesson it, they're the worst there's nothing worse and I, I fully support putting the fun back in funeral <laughs> yeah have you seen that extreme embalming thing that was a craze for a little while no so my mom went to a funeral where someone was on a, a Chez lounge like the, the cadaver oh. um and so I started looking this up and there was a trend for a while I don't know if it's not but like people were getting yeah, the viewing was people were getting embalmed on like a motorcycle that they loved or sitting in their favorite easy chair with a six pack. And on the one hand, part of my, my, my Southern upbringing is like, how dare they? This is this is mortifying. On the other hand, I'm like, you know what? If that makes people happy, why the hell not? Right. At one On one hand, you're like, did I walk into the bodies exhibit? When did I get to Las Vegas? <laughs> yeah. And on the flip side, you're like, is this wrong? Wow. Now I'm going to go down a rabbit hole about, oh, yeah. about extreme embalming. Uh, <laughs> when I say public library, what comes to mind? Oh, public libraries raised me. Um, I was a child of divorced parents. So when your parents are divorced, you're always being dropped off and picked up somewhere. And for me, it was always a library, always a library. And so like, I, I, I owe so much the library and there's nothing I like more than hanging out in one and I actually it's it's funny years ago I spent a few months living in my car this is a long time ago back in the 90s and um libraries were the safe space like they had air conditioning you could do something like one of the most boring parts about not having a permanent place to live is what do you do like you know like living out of your car where do you sit where do you go public parks and public libraries. I couldn't afford to go in a store and buy crap. So like I went to libraries. So libraries are, are huge. And um, and I, I've worked for, for many years. I, I don't anymore. For many years, I, I worked in a um, soup kitchen. And so many of our guests, like libraries were like an essential lifeline for them. Um, you know, it's where they filled out, you know, paperwork, applications, got forms they need to fill. I mean, it was just you know access those, and equity yeah yeah i mean library you know libraries and public parks man they're free like you know it's there there is something someone once said to me uh that one of the things that gave them hope for humanity is that people at one point in the 19th century looked at <clears throat> the most expensive real estate in the world smack dab in the middle of New York City and said, you know what we should do with this? 
we should make it a park for everyone. And, you know, that's... And it's still yeah. there. Yeah. And it's still there. Yeah. And here it's pretty popular. Um, <laughs> I've heard, yeah. I've heard tale, but yeah. you know. So, so yeah, libraries and parks, man, they, I cannot say. And, and, you know, one thing I would like urge people to do is if your library has a friends of the library group, get involved. Like those groups are the backbone of library services. Like they really channel so much money into libraries join support it's a great way it, even if you are someone who only has an hour in your week that that you can like afford to give that's usually what the friends meeting will look like even if you're just yeah you know kind of helping talk and and let your voice be heard but it's a great way to keep those those kind of things fair yeah and it's funny you know i i do a lot of like events at libraries so i've seen a fair number and one of the things that's always fascinating to me is every library is funded differently. You know, some it's, it, and it's wild to me to go from like <clears throat> Michigan or Connecticut uh, where they have really smart, progressive policies that fund their libraries. And, um, and then you go somewhere like Texas where, you know, it's like the live, I was talking to a young adult librarian and she was like, yeah, I'm trying to raise money to buy some manga because we've got five. She's like, I can't afford to buy more. And the kids really love it. She's like, but I, I can't afford it. You know, it was just night and day, you know. That, that is heartbreaking. But right, that is why friends, anywhere that you can kind of give time, give effort, give money if you're able. It's a, it's a great way to put that back into your community. Yeah. My Best Friend's Exorcism drops September 30th on Prime Video. Anything yes. you'd like to share about that? Um, I was just watching it with an audience last night, which no one's going to be able to do because you've been streaming. Um, and, you know, one of the things that I really like about the movie is that Elsie Fisher, who plays Abby from Bo Burnham's Eighth Grade and a bunch of other stuff now, and Amia Miller, who's Gretchen, and she plays, uh, uh, she's been in the Planet of the Apes movies, I think. Um, and Chris Lowell, who he's been the boyfriend, he's been the bad boyfriend in so many movies. Um, uh, he plays Brother Lemon, and the three of them really are so good in it. They, they really, I mean, I've, eventually, I hope people give Elsie Fisher roles where she doesn't have to have a lot of acne. Um, but, but bless her heart. Uh, but they're so much fun. And it's actually funny. I saw a rough cut or a rougher cut of the movie a while back uh, or a few weeks ago. And so last night they re-edited it. And one of the things they did is they added in a, and extended a bunch of scenes with um, Abby and the exorcist, Brother Lemon, because they work so well together. It's like, they just wanted more of them, you know? And I was like, yeah, smart, smart move. I love that they looked at it and said, no, we need this in. This is, yeah. this is gold. Um, what's your favorite scary movie? I can't do a good ghost face. So that's, that's what we'll, yeah. we'll use. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I think one of them, I've got two favorite movies of all time, hands down. And one of them is Return of the Living Dead from 1985. Because even beyond horror movies, I just feel like that movie, it, it delivers on every promise it makes to the audience plus. And it goes from being a goofy comedy to a really grim, serious movie. I mean, the the Tina moment is like haunts me from the moment I saw it for the first time. Um, and there's a there's a moment in that movie, as goofy as it is, where 
some of the comic relief characters like show genuine emotion for each other. And I really moves me. And it just, it just taught me that that works, that you can, that there's nothing wrong with being funny and you can still keep turning that dial towards real emotions. Like being funny doesn't preclude realism. Absolutely. No character needs to be a throwaway or a bit part or a caricature. They can all run a gamut of emotion. And that's actually funny when you say that. I hadn't really thought about that, but you're right. Like so often characters get used as like a comic relief, like, oh, it's the bitch or, you know, or, oh, it's the horny guy. And one of the things I love about Return of Living Dead is even um, the characters who get played for jokes get allowed to have serious moments, you know, even suicide. Um, or no, sorry, Spike. Uh, is it Spike? No, suicide. Suicide. Yeah. Um, he 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 uh, gets to be a hero. He gets to have a hero moment. You know, it's like um, when he when he rescues uh, what's her name. Um, you know, right before he gets his brains bitten out. But like he's he's the one who gets to be a hero. Like so, it's like everyone gets to have their moment, even the even the jokes. It, it is really cool to see that we can use tropes and still play it out. And yeah. it's, it's encouraging that it's uh, it's still happening today. Um, before I, we wrap up, is there yeah. anything else you'd like listeners to take away from How to Sell a Haunted House? No, um, I just, I hope people like it. It took me a long time to get this book right. Um, longer than it normally does. We had to bump the pub date. Um, and, you know, I there are th- three radically different versions of this book that I wrote before I got to the version that people are going to read, which is the right version. Um, but it was, it was, it was hard, man. It just, it, and I, and I don't, I think because it was a book about parents dying that I wrote when my parents were coming very close to dying, um, that I just, it just was tough for me to, to land this one. So I so I'm really nervous about it being out there, and I, so I hope people like it. Because if I work that hard, and people are like meh, read better, uh, I'm gonna go play Call of Duty now. I'm uh, I'm gonna cry a, a single tiny teardrop, a single tiny tear, and then you'll also pick up the Xbox controller. Uh, <laughs> exactly. It, it, honestly, it is a beautiful character story. It harkens back to movies. Uh, it harkens to so many to different compelling points, and it it reminds us of not only our own humanity, but that like. We never know what other people are going through. And as much as we try to say that in the world post, and I air quotes on post pandemic, uh, we still need that reminder that like everyone handles each moment differently. And yes, on one hand, you've got just a great horror story about trying to sell this haunted house. And on the other hand, you have an opportunity to look within yourself and say, how do I handle this situation? So Listeners, check out How to Sell a Haunted House out January 17th from Berkeley. Uh, Grady, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today. Oh, dude, thanks for having me. Well, we hope to have you back uh, when that, that next one drops. But thank you all so much for joining us today and happy reading. Readers can sample and borrow the titles mentioned in today's episode on Overdrive.com and our library friends can purchase these titles in Marketplace. Professional Book Nerds is proud to be an Evergreen Podcast signature program. To learn about other Evergreen podcasts, visit evergreenpodcast.com. Our podcast is produced, recorded, and edited by Emma Dwyer, Jill Grunewald, and Joe Skelly, and presented by Overdrive. To learn more, visit professionalbooknerds.com. This is the story of The One. 
As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.